Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. The Old Testament book of Isaiah in Isaiah and chapter number 8. Isaiah and chapter number 8. We're continuing with our series dealing with the history of the Bible. And we're walking through how did we get our English Bible. Now as we've tried to catch up to where we are before, that we started off with a promise of preservation. And we took some time to theologically explain this promise of preservation. Then on the second term, we took time to describe the different terms so that we were familiar with a little vernacular, with a vocabulary that may pop up and talking about the unseals and talking about the manuscripts scripts, talking about the cursives. And now we're going to start getting more into the meat, the nuts and bolts. And we begin to speak on a period that we'll describe in a second, speaking of the silent years. Now as we do that, let's start in the book of Isaiah in chapter number 8. The book of Isaiah chapter number 8. And notice with me in verse number 19. The book of Isaiah chapter 8 and verse number 19. Notice what the Bible says. And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep, and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God? For the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And if you don't mind, if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, mark a phrase that we find in the book of Isaiah chapter number 8. Isaiah chapter number 8, notice with me in verse number 20, where it says specifically and very clearly, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And with the Lord's help, we're going to speak a little bit more on a subject called the silent years. However, this verse is going to be a great backdrop to what is happening. That if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. With the Lord's help, let's go together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity once again to open up your word and to open up the annals of history to be able to describe the history of your word. That we can have confidence that this indeed is the very word that you wanted us to have. That it is your word that speaks life. It is your word that encourages. It is your word that we have. We know that Satan loves to attack and try to destroy the word of God and to take the word of God out of our hands and cause it to have doubt in our minds. I'm asking that in fact the opposite would happen here. That we would be nailed down even more that this indeed is the very word of God. Fill me with your spirit now and that you guide and direct. You get your work accomplished and let this be a help to these folks today. In Jesus name. Amen. Well this is a very clear and distinctive passage here where God is very clear that in verse number 19, in fact, it says, 
Um, and when they shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and that mutter. What it's speaking about here is that more people are going to look for their answers somewhere. And there's a lot of place to try to find answers. But it is the word of God that has the true answer. And if people deny the word of God, then they're left with nothing else but to go find other sources for their answer. And for those people who deny the word of God or try to take away the word of God, the Bible's very clear that if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now that's very clear and very easily understood. And we do know that there is an attack on those who believe on the word of God that they are being attacked and the Bible is trying to be taken from them. So with this, let's go ahead and hit a period of history that the scholars call the silent centuries, the silent years. What is this period of time? Well, to get a running start, John the Apostle finished his writing about 90 AD. And so that would be the gospel record of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. He was the last biblical writer of the New Testament era, and he finished his writings about 90 AD. Now, the first complete New Testament manuscripts are dated about 400 AD. Without a doubt, we acknowledge that, that the full manuscripts, meaning that the uh, Bible that we have in our hand, the manuscripts, the first full manuscript that we have in its completion is found about 400 AD. Now, during this time, the completion of the text to the dating of the oldest manuscript, there is a time period that the scholars refer to as the silent years. So in between the finishing of the New Testament to the period of 400 AD is a uh, series of years that the scholars would call the silent years. Now they claim that this period of silence makes it impossible to authenticate what the disciples and apostles truly wrote. So in their idea that if the only manuscript that we have or the oldest manuscript that we have in its entirety is in the 400 ADs, what they would claim is that if there is no evidence of manuscripts between the finishing of the New Testament to 400 AD, that's 400 years. How can you know what we have during that time? And so they said it's impossible to authenticate that this Bible was not tampered with, was not changed, was not modified. And this is what they say, of course. These theologians write papers and they write lots of papers on these silent years and all of them are meant to reject the authenticity of the word of God. Meaning that they are writing these papers to say, listen, you can't trust the Bible that you have in your hand. You can't trust it. it it's, it's corrupt. Who knows what it should say? Well, that gives us a problem because do we have God's word or do we not have God's word? However, the literature found in these silent years does more to support the Bible than it does to support the professor's arguments. These are the arguments or these are the literature we want to explore tonight to give proof that, hey, these people who are writing in the first and second and third centuries, they had a Bible to refer to and we can prove it.
Now, according to those who support the idea of the silent years, the apostles passed on the things they remembered about the Lord verbally. So here would be Peter. Peter would say, hey, Mark, let me tell you a little bit about what happened, what Jesus told me. And Mark says, this is really good. And so Mark would go preach and he said, according to Peter, this is what Jesus told me. And then someone would say, well, I heard a message about Mark, or from Mark and Mark said, this is what Jesus said. And so it'd be like a telephone game where they would just have to verbally remember what was passed on from time and time again. The disciples would in turn pass on the stories to others and over time oral traditions develop following the death of the apostles. And so what would happen is that they would have the telephone game and people would have to remember these oral traditions that would be passed on until finally someone got the bright idea of writing it down about 400 AD. So these oral traditions were collected and written down and on this became the basis of the New Testament. So let's kind of remember what they're saying. They're saying that during this time we don't have any Bible, but instead we have oral traditions that people just passed them on orally until finally someone decided to write them down. And what they wrote down is the basis of the New Testament. Now how they word that's important. They say it's the basis of the New Testament. So this teaches that the words are not important as long as you have the general message of the Bible. So as long as we get across the general message, it doesn't matter which words you use as long as the message is carried out. So the application to this line of thinking is that it doesn't matter which version of the Bible you use because all of them just carry the general sense of the word. And as long as they carry the general sense, it doesn't matter which Bible, as long as it carries across the sense. Well, we would have to disagree with that, that the Bible is very clear that God said he promised to preserve his words. But this is where they come up with, in fact, the professors, and there's lots of them who speak about it. They all say it doesn't matter what Bible you use. As long as it carries the idea. So if you want to use an NIV, great. If you want to use a Klingon Bible, great. If you want to use the RSV, if you want to use the Ebonics Bible, if you want to speak the Redneck Bible, it doesn't matter, by the way, those all exist. (laughs) That you could pick whichever one you want, and it's fine as long as uh, the general sense is given across. Well, those who support these silent centuries teach there's no way of knowing what the Bible says over a passage of time. Well, that's a big deal. That they're saying that the Bible we have in our hand, we just don't know for sure. This is our best guesstimate. This is our guess of what the disciples said, of what Jesus said, and what he wrote down. Well, I don't want to have a book that was guessing what Jesus said. I want to have the actual word of God. Now, to counter the teaching of the silent centuries, we have the witness of history during that time period. And this is what we want to present to you to encourage your faith, that we don't have to depend on some preacher saying what's true and what's not. We don't have to depend on some scholar saying what's true or not. We actually have the witness of history to prove that the Bible that we have is indeed the very word of God that God intended us to have. So let's cover this. In the next two messages, today and next week, we're going to go over some of these 
history parts of the silent centuries to show you the plethora of evidence that we have to show that the Bible that we have in our hand is indeed the very word of God, not the thoughts and not the intents, but the very words that God intended us to have. So let's start off with a line of thought of the patristic chorus. The patristic chorus. Now this book was hit written by Henry Rimmer, one of the unknown great champions of our faith. He did a lot about creation, evolution, about the Bible. Now patristic, that word, comes from the idea of padre, papa, patriarch, all of them dealing with the idea of a father. And so when we talk about patristic, we're speaking about what is generally called the church fathers, the early writers of the first, second, and third centuries. In this book, Henry Rimmer chronicled the writings of the early Christians and listed every chapter and verse that they referred to. So as he would go through, he would read something about one of those early fathers and they would quote scripture. And he would say, all right, this is the chapter and verse that they quoted from. Oh, look, they quoted again. Here's a chapter and verse that he quoted from. And then he would put them in a book. All right, this is what all the books and all the verses that was quoted from, from all of these writings that he got a hold of. He researched the writings from the time of Christ to the close of the 30, uh, 3rd century. Now in the 1700s, Sir David uh, Darlimple claimed that from this collection, the entire New Testament could be assembled from quotes and letters and sermons of the preachers who lived in the first three centuries. This evidence was confirmed by Dean John Bergeron, who also searched through the quotes and the writings of the church father. Let me show you what they found out. Uh, Dean uh, John Bergeron took the quotes of the first century people, the second century and the third century writers, and he matched them chapter and verse to the Bible, just kind of like Henry Rimmer did, but this is another person who tried to duplicate the same thing. And so he took, matched them up chapter and verse and recorded them down. He collected the sermons, commentaries, and letters that were written. Basically anything that was available from the 100s, the 200s, and the 300s AD. When he was done, he had 16 volumes with 86,489 quotations, all of them from the Word of God. That is thousands and thousands of quotes from every chapter of the New Testament. That's quite a big undertaking. Spent years of his life researching all of their writings and writing it down and putting it together in a book and said, all right, let's see how many times that John 1 is quoted in all of these writings and he would have it down and to put it together. That's a pretty impressive resource, isn't it? To be able to look and see all these things. So who were some of these men that Henry Rimmer, that uh, <coughs> that Dean John Bergeron, who were some of these people that they had took their writings and began to explore and try to find out the, all the scriptures that they quoted. If you don't mind, I'd like to take some time to ex introduce you to some of these writing uh, people in the first, second, and third centuries. Let's start with Polycarp. Polycarp is very interesting. He was born about 50 AD. Now, if you're keeping track, this is right in the middle of the days of the apostles. So, when the apostles are alive, by the way, this is Paul's alive, Peter's alive, Timothy's alive, John's alive. Right in the middle of the apostles, he is born. This is... <coughs> 
He was martyred in about 155 AD. So he lived over 100 years. And when he was going to be killed on the day of his death, he said this, 86 years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? That's a good way to go, isn't it? He said, I know you're an old man. How about this? You deny Christ and we'll let you go. He's like, no, God's done great things for me for 86 years. How can I deny him now? Praise the Lord for that that stand that he had. Now, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, and he was ordained to the ministry by the apostle John. Again, he knew the apostles. He knew John. John's the one who said, guess what? I'm going to ordain you to be the pastor of the church of Smyrna. That'd be cool, wouldn't it, to have the apostle John give his authenticity to put his endorsement upon you? He wrote a letter and sent it to two new converts to encourage them. So um, we have several writings of Polycarp. There was one specific letter where he's writing to two new converts. want to encourage you to stay faithful. In this letter, he praises the Philippians for their kindness. Of course, we know that there's a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians. But he's writing and he's thanking the Philippians for their kindness. He answered their request, these two uh, new converts... Four epistles. Remember the word epistles, writing. So they said, hey, Polycarp, we're brand new Christians. Can you write us a letter? Absolutely. And so he's writing them a letter. And when he did, he quoted numerous verses and phrases from 12 different New Testament books. Now this is pretty important. He's writing a letter, and in this letter, he's quoting from 12 different books of the Bible. He mentions by name the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, and he encouraged these two new converts to read and study the book of Philippians. By the way, this letter was written in 110 A.D. This is pretty significant. That in 110 A.D., he's writing letters to others and telling them and quoting from 12 of the 26 of the New Testament books. By the way, that's just a letter to encourage you. And he's encouraging these people to study the book of Philippians. By the way, this is only 20 years after John has gone home to be with the Lord. And some people said we didn't have a Bible back then. Well, if he didn't have a Bible, how were they going to study the book of Philippians? If he didn't have a Bible, how's he quoting from 12 of the 27 books of the New Testament? That's a pretty important distinction, isn't it? What is he quoting from if he doesn't have a Bible? Well, let's go to Barnabas. This is a different Barnabas than the Barnabas found in the book of Acts. This Barnabas wrote an epistle in about 98 AD. This is only eight years after John the Apostle went home to be with the Lord. That's pretty close to the source. And in this, Barnabas quoted in his letter, Matthew twenty-two fourteen, 14, Acts 4, 32, John 3, 14, John 6, 58, John 8, 58, John 13, 34, 2 Peter 3, 8. Now again, here's Barnabas who's writing at 98 AD when the time when the scholars said they don't have a Bible. Well, if he doesn't have a Bible, how's he able to quote all these verses? He must have had something to quote from back in that time. Well, let's go with another man. Let's go with Ignatius, one of the old writers. Ignatius was martyred in about 95 AD. Again, pretty close to the source. 
He was the bishop of Antioch. Now, I want you to pay attention for the next three, four messages. How often we bring up this place of Antioch. Antioch of Syria. This is going to be one of the key churches that you need to pay attention to with the idea of the history of the Bible and the history of the New Testament church. And so he was the bishop, the pastor of the church of Antioch. Now he was sentenced to die in Rome, but he was allowed to visit the cities in which he passed along the way to the arena where he was going to be killed to preach and to teach and to make converts. That was nice of them. So as the Roman soldiers are dragging him to Rome to go face the emperor and to go killed, be killed by the lions, he's allowed to stop by the cities along the way and say, hey, can I take some time to preach? Sure, why not? And so he preached and saw people saved and went to the next one. Well, that's a good way to go to the to the arena to go get killed by lions is to see as many people saved as you possibly can. You think he's motivated by time? There's no such thing as tomorrow. Let's get people saved today. Now, Ignatius wrote just before his death to the church at Ephesus, showing them gratitude and comfort for the kindness bestowed on them by their chief presbyter, a man by the name of Onesimus. If you're not familiar with Onesimus, you find him as the runaway slave found in the book of Philemon. And guess what? This runaway slave is now a preacher of a church. The pastor of a church. It's neither here nor there, but it's kind of interesting to tie things together. That Ignatius said, oh man, I want to thank uh, Onesimus. He was a great preacher and he loved me so much. In that letter, he quotes from the epistle to Paul to the church of Ephesians and several other New Testament books. That's, again, what is he quoting from if he doesn't have a Bible? How can you say, hey, just like Paul said in the letter to Ephesians and be able to quote the letter if there's no letter to quote from? Let's go to another guy. A guy by the name of Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus is called the first great scholar of the Western church. The first great scholar of the Western church. He spent his younger years in the church of Smyrna. Uh, Smyrna, you'll see him as one of the uh, churches of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. He was a pupil of Polycarp. We talked about Polycarp before. So Polycarp taught um, Arrhenius, and Arrhenius was a great scholar. He was the first great scholar of the Western church. He wrote extensively until the time of his death in a 157 AD. Now that's pretty important. He's still living in that first century time frame. He was familiar with the writings of Paul and John. How do we know that? Because he talked about it in all of his writings. Remember, he's a great scholar. He's putting together books. And in his books, he talks about the writings of Paul, the writings of John. He quoted from Paul's epistles. He quoted from John's epistles. And he quoted from all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That's pretty cool. That here he's quoting from the different gospel records and he's quoting from Paul. Again, how can he quote from something that's not in existence? Now again, we're just trying to say, hey, these people had something they're quoting from. They had something they're writing from. That there was no such thing as some invisible Bible that no one had until 400 AD. They had proof that these people had something that they clearly referred to. Now, Irenaeus was the first Bible teacher to put teaching in writing for future study. I like him already. 
He was the first guy to decide, I'm going to write books. And in this book, I'm going to teach you about the Bible. So here's your first thing about the Bible. Here's some things that you need to know about studying the Bible, studying the book. Let me tell you about Paul's journeys. Let me tell you about what John did. That's pretty cool to have the first uh, great scholar and the first great Bible teacher. He has to have a Bible to teach from. Doesn't that make sense? Irenaeus was also the first commentator. What is a commentary? A commentary is a, is a view of a book of the Bible. And to be able to write it, to be able to explain it. He didn't write about his thoughts and opinions and his ideas about God. That's important to note. That he's not saying, well let me tell you what I think is true about God. Well let me tell you what my thoughts were. In fact, what he did is he said, this is what Paul wrote. This is what Peter wrote. This is what the gospel records said about Jesus. Then he commentated on what they said. Well, Paul said this. This is what he's referring to. This is what Peter said. This is what he's describing. This is what Jesus said. And this is what he's talking to. And he gives a commentary based off of what they actually said. That's a good commentary. Now again, how can you write commentaries on the books of the New Testament... If there's not any in existence. Now all we're doing is using logic here. We're not taking a course here where we're trying to study and prove things. This is logic, isn't it? I mean, is everyone following that we have a Bible that someone is referring to? Good. We'll take questions at the end. But this is something <laughs> that's important. Now, Irenaeus has citations from the New Testament scriptures and references to the events contained therein. So again, how can you properly cite something if you don't have it to cite from? That's pretty important, if, especially if you're doing a research paper or a commentary. You want to be able to let people follow along with what you're commentating about. Now, <laughs> he references almost or his references, almost give an entire summary of the New Testament. In fact, in his commentaries, he provides summary teaching of each of the different books that make up the New Testament. And so he says, let me summarize the gospel record of Luke for you. Let me summarize the epistle that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. Let me summarize what Peter said in the book of 1 Peter. Now again, how can you summarize something you don't have? Now I know I sound like a broken record, but I'm trying to encourage you. They had something. Let's talk about Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr is a fascinating study. We're actually going to bring him up several times in the next several sessions. But Justin Martyr is important. The word martyr was attached to his name because of the faithfulness he manifested while being tortured for his faith and dying for Christ. He had such a testimony that as he died, he said, that's what a martyr, that's how a martyr should die. And so retroactively, he was called Justin Martyr. Some say that he wrote a to about 4, uh, 148 AD, why others date his writings as late as 166 AD. So <laughs> we're just kind of getting a semblance of when he was writing. He wrote volume after volume after volume. He was a very prolific writer. He liked to write and liked to try to write things down for people to read. 
He is quoted a great deal from those that followed him. And by the way, his followers were great writers. And they would say, just like Justin Martyr had taught us. And they would explain what they had been taught. Justin Martyr said this this way. It's good to find someone that you can quote. And that can say things in a very clear, concise way. I quote from people all the time. It's helpful. And they would quote from Justin Martyr. Because he was just a prolific writer. He had an entire collection of essays on Jesus Christ being God just based on the word studies from John chapter 1. Meaning he had a whole bunch of writings just speaking about Jesus being the word. Now if you're not familiar with that, maybe you want to look with me in the book of John chapter 1. In the book of John chapter 1 it says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He wrote entire essays speaking about Jesus being the word. He says, Let me, let's look in John chapter 1 and see Jesus Christ is the word. Verse 2, still speaking about the word. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And he would write entire essays speaking about how the word made everything. In first John, or book of gospel record of John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten of the father. Full of grace and truth. And again Justin Martyr is writing entire essays. Based off of Jesus being called the word. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And we could go and read his writings even today. Justin Martyr wrote books and letters and pamphlets, all teaching that Jesus Christ was divine, meaning that Jesus Christ was God. That's pretty amazing to be able to have these letters. Now, Justin Martyr, as he was writing, he also said other things. He talked about the Christian life. When he spoke about Christians, he said, this is what Christians should do. Christians should gather together on Sunday, the first day of the week. He said that the Christians should meet together for scripture lesson from the New Testament. Then he said, they should, Christians should assemble and listen to a sermon by a bishop or a presbyter. Presbyter is a fancy word of saying a preacher. He also said Christians should unite in prayer, should take up an offering in giving thanks to God, and should celebrate Holy Communion in remembrance of the Savior. Now, let me remind you that this is in the 100s AD. Sounds pretty much like the church service that we still have today, doesn't it? That we sing songs, give thanks, we read the Bible, we explain the Bible, we take up an offering... Praise the Lord. We're just keeping things the same. And this is what he said. This is what Christians should participate. They should have a service just like this. I'm glad that we're not too far off, aren't you? Justin Martyr, in one of his writings, mentions the book of Revelation by name. That's pretty good when he's writing and said, let me tell you what the book of Revelation has to say. Justin Justin Martyr quotes from Matthew, Luke, John, 1 John, and half a dozen of Pauline epistles. Again, How can he quote from something if it does not exist? Let's go to Tertullian. Now again, I'm just giving you a lot of stuff. I love this stuff. You know, you may say, well, this is boring. But I love this stuff. And I like having encouragement. Look, we have history that proves we have something here. 
We have Tertullian. Tertullian taught from 190 to 211 AD. He was the son of a centurion who was in the service of the co-council of Africa. He was born of heathen parents, meaning he wasn't raised in a Christian home. He was raised in a heathen home. He was reared in the philosophy of the Greeks. After his conversion of faith in Jesus Christ, he was elevated by his learning and zeal to the place of power and leadership in the Christian church. He put together a canon for the New Testament. What is a canon? A canon is a collection of books that will comprise of a New Testament collection. Uh, uh, collection. So he said, you know what? We have all of these different scrolls everywhere. Hey, why don't we put them together for the ease of people having one book in their hand? Well, I'm glad he did that. I'm glad that we don't have to bring 66 scrolls with us to church and that we have to hope that the preacher picks the one that we brought with us. We have a Bible in our hand that's all together. And he said, let's put it together so we could have it in one place. People could have it for the ease. Now, his canon included the gospel record of Luke and 10 Pauline epistles. You say, wait a second, that's only 11. No, 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 let's reverse that. He had 11 books to put into his canon. Now, remember, this is still the early ages. A lot of the epistles are floating around different places. He says, let's gather up what we can. And he was able to gather up 11 of them. He had 11 somethings to gather together. That's better than the nothings that the people said that we did have. So this bears testimony that these books were in existence. Well, let's go to Clement of Alexandria. Let's cover a little bit more. He was a contemporary of Tertullian. He was a prolific writer. One commentator says his pen never seemed to be idle. He was always writing, always trying to give instruction. His work in the Samantra, this is his book that he wrote, the Samantra, he speaks with reverence of the writings of Peter, James, John, and Paul. So you can still see this book today, and in this book he talks about the writings of Peter, James, John, and Paul. Now, Clement is writing about 211 A.D. He quotes from the entire Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. In his writings, he covered every book of the Old Testament with the exception of Ruth and Song of Solomon. So, in his writings, he spoke about all the books of the Old Testament except for two. And by the way, those are two small books, so not a big deal. I mean, that's pretty good. Then in the New Testament, he quotes from every book except for James, Philemon, and 2 Peter. That's pretty good too. That in a time where they don't say you have a Bible, and yet he's quoting from almost every book of the Bible. Well, that's a big deal, isn't it? Let's hit another guy, Origen. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time on Origen. Origen is not a good guy. However, he's helpful in this study because of the work that he did do. Origen. At the age of 16, Origen witnessed his father's martyrdom and began to start writing that year. There's no evidence that he was born again, though his parents were Christian. Again, this is going to be a big deal. We're going to speak a lot about Origen. He is not a good guy. However, he's very important He's a very important witness to the existence of the New Testament scriptures during the silent years. In 219 AD, he began a commentary 
on the book of John. So he says, I think I want to do a commentary on the book of John. Let me start. And guess what? It grew to 32 volumes and was considered his masterpiece. Now, you got to have something to do a commentary for, especially he, from this one book of the gospel record of John, he wrote 32 volumes of commentary. That's quite a bit. He finished commentaries on all 27 New Testament books. Now, let me pause here. Inside of the Bible cemeteries and the Bible colleges, what they're going to do is they're going to praise the great and mighty Origen. And they tout him as one of the most important figures of the ancient world about the Bible. And yet, this guy, he writes 27 New Testament books. Definitely, don't you think if the uh, Bible professors and the Bible scholars are, are touting about how great he is, they knew what he wrote? And yet they'll turn around and say, we don't have any Bible till 400 AD. It almost sounds like something's missing there, doesn't it? That something's messed up. The Bible says they are willingly ignorant. How can you say this is my favorite writer and it's because of him we have the church that we have today? We don't. And yet say, oh, by the way, we know that he wrote books on the Bible, but we didn't have a Bible that time. Does it make sense? But that's neither here nor there. We'll talk about origin later. Let's talk about Athenaeus. 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 They have cool names back then. Athenaeus. Athenaeus lived from 293 to 7 or 375 or 3. He started writing about 318 AD. He published elaborate theological works beginning about uh, 319. So he began to actually start publishing his works then. He was very familiar with the New Testament in its form as we have it today as evidenced by his quotations from it. He was a great fighter of the Arian heresy. What is the Arian heresy? The Arian heresy was something that began to develop at this time that began to say that Jesus Christ was human that had elements of spirituality. We'll talk more about this later, but this is the basis of Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses says that Jesus is not God, but he had elements of divinity inside of his human form. This is the Arian uh, heresy. Um, Anthonisius actually said, no, that's not true. Jesus is God. Stop denying it. And he wrote lots of papers trying to refute and say, listen, Jesus is God. Anthonius, while writing to refute the various heresies, he quoted the Gospel of John five times. Matthew twice, Romans three times, Hebrews three times, John one time. And by the way, this was the shortest of his replies. He had a lot longer ones later on. What's he quoting from if they don't have a Bible? In his writings, we find quotations from every book of the New Testament. We're thankful for his writings that we could look and find it. Now, if you translated his quotations from the New Testament into English, they would match our King James authorized Bible exactly. They were exactly what God intended us to have. And we can compare it by his quotes that they say the very same thing. Let's go to hit a couple more. You guys are listening very patiently. We're going to hit different evidences next week. We're just hitting writers today. We come to the guy by the name of Hippolytus. We don't know how big he was, but his name was Hippolytus. 
Hippolytus was a student of Irenaeus. He was probably born about 170 AD. He spent much of his early life in Rome. In fact, Origen heard him preach. He wrote from 198 to 236 AD. He was a very prolific writer. He wrote a book called Refutations of All Heresies. That's a pretty good book to have back in the day. Let me go ahead and explain how to refute all heresies. Well, let's find out how to do that. He urged his adversaries, do not build your arguments on isolated text, but you should base your arguments on the entire New Testament. Take the New Testament as a whole. Let's pause. Here's a thought. If he's going to offer the advice of examining the whole New Testament, he must have an entire New Testament to examine. Doesn't that make sense? And they had to be available to the people who were having these heresies as well if he's telling them to study the entire New Testament. Then we go to Cyprian. Cyprian. Cyprian was the bishop of Carthage. He was well educated with a legal background. He wrote about 248 to 258 AD. He became a Christian late in life and baptized. It was baptized in 246 AD. He fled from Carthage during the persecution of, excuse me, the, uh, I didn't update, I had the right Roman emperor earlier, but it didn't update on my slides, forgive me, and the persecution of Vivacian. I have to remember if that was correct, Vivacian, in 498. He was subject to condemnation, but was returned to the pastorate in 251 Uh, AD. Now, let me pause and kind of explain what's going on. So he was a preacher preaching and pastoring a church. Persecution came to the land and he said, you know what? I don't want to die. And so he took off and fled. And like it or not, you don't know what you would do in that area either if they were coming to kill you and to kill your family. Now, some people, it's easy to armchair quarterback and say, well, you know what? I would stand for what's right. Yeah, we have a hard time standing for right when there's no persecution. But he ran and took off and then he came back and they said, all right, here you could be pastor again. Oh, well, thank you. But during this time, the Roman church split into factions about those that were willing to forgive those who took off and those who were not willing to forgive those that took off. There were some that were like, listen here, if he was a coward then, we can't expect him to stand now. He should never pastor again. And there's others that say, you know what? You don't know what you would do. He ran, he's repented, he got right. Let's just leave him alone. But there was a big argument. Can you imagine Christians arguing over such a thing? Yeah. And so <laughs> that was a big fight that came up. When the next persecution came, the Valerian persecution came in 258 uh, AD, Cyprian decided, I'm not going to flee again. I've already made that mistake once. They've criticized me. I'm going to prove I am not going to run. And in fact, he was arrested in Carthage and he was executed soon after. He says, I'm going to hold my ground and if I have to die for my faith, I'll die for my faith. Now, Cyprian's surviving works consist of a large number of letters and 10 or so treaties on church-related subjects. He wrote the book's Exhortation to Martyrdom and on the unity of the church. In these books, he quotes many New Testament books by name. 
So again, he had to have something to quote from as he's writing his books. Let's go to Basil, Basil the Great. Basil the Great was one of the great Cappadocian fathers. He was born in a well-to-do family about 330 AD. He studied in several cities before becoming a hermit in 358. Then in 360s, he decided, I'm going to become a pastor. Forget being a hermit. I'm going to go ahead and preach. In 370, he became the bishop of the Cappadocian Caesarea. We say that there's many Caesareans. We're trying to identify which Caesarea we're talking about. Cappadocia Caesarea. He possessed one of the great codexes. Remember, we define codexes. A codex is scrolls that are sewn together into one big document. He possessed one of the great codexes of the New Testament written in 336. He had in possession the New Testament altogether, where he could read it altogether. He wrote a book called On the Holy Spirit. He also wrote letters which illuminate the problems of being a pastor in troublous times. I appreciate that. He's writing about, you know what? Let me tell you, when people don't want to serve and we're at a place where there's persecution, let me tell you about some of the troubles about being a pastor. I appreciate that. We're writing all the way back then. He's writing about how hard it is. His quotations from scriptures have been shown to be the Byzantine time manuscripts. We're going to define that later on. But basically when you see Byzantine type uh, manuscripts, it's the correct text. It's the text we're looking for, the Byzantine type manuscripts. So we get, went through a lot of writers. What can we draw the conclusion from? Well, let's see what conclusions we could come up to just seeing these writers. The scholars and professors want to teach that before the 400s, there wasn't any written word of God in the New Testament. This teaching gives the basis to disregard the authority of God's word. Yet, we have much historical evidence to show the people of that time that they did have a written New Testament that was available to them. If you don't mind... We had started with this text before in Isaiah. Notice again, it says, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep and mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living <coughs> to the dead? And to the law and testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Now these people will deny the Bible. They will give, say there's no reason to believe that this Bible is the word of God. Well because of their teaching, we could see that sometimes things corrupt. Perhaps we can compare something. Why we're in Isaiah, look with me in Isaiah chapter 7. One of the most important passages dealing with the Christian faith is the virgin birth. This doctrine of the virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, we see the promise of the virgin birth. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive... And bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, again, the basis of our Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is God. 
And the, one of the proofs that he was God was the miracle of a virgin birth. He did not have an earthly father. He had a heavenly father. It was a supernatural birth. And that the basis of Christianity is that Jesus is God. Remember we had talked a little bit about the Arian heresy. That Jesus was not God. He had, was man with human um, characteristics. Well the people who deny the Bible want to deny the virgin birth. Let's look at the same passage in what is called the Revised Standard Version. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child. Is something missing there? The virgin birth. Here it says that the young woman is with child and shall bear him a son and shall call him Emmanuel. What they've done is because they deny the virgin birth, they now change the text to match their belief. And what they'll do is they'll just replace it. Well, we know that the Revised Standard Version is considered the liberal version. How about the more conservative NIV? Let's see what it has to say. It says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin. Alright, we're sounding good, but wait a second, there's a little asterisk there. And if you would look in the NIV and look at that asterisk, you would look underneath it and see that it gives the definition, means young maiden. And you'll see this. Why? Because they doubt God's word. And the Bible was very clear that if they turn against God's word, it is because there is no light in them. And so this isn't a little change when it talks about the virgin birth. That's a big change. Where it changes the deity of Christ. And what you're going to find in all of these Bible versions is that what they take out is going to be an attack on the deity of Christ. This is why it's a big deal. We want to have God's word. Not God's word that tells us that Jesus is not God. Because it takes away our salvation. It takes away our faith. That's why the Bible says if, they, if it's not to this word. There is no light in them. This is a big deal. It does matter what Bible we have. It does matter our history and where it came from. It does matter that we have confidence that this indeed is God's word. So as we make the application, and we're going to make the application over and over. If this is indeed God's word, are you reading it like God's word? Are you treating it like God's word? Do you love it as if it was God's word? Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available.
Thank you.